Lord, that's a confession that we, uh, we make, and it's truth uh, that we know only because, Lord, you've revealed it to us. We believe in God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We believe that you are merciful, you are gracious, you are kind, you are loving. Lord, you are righteous. And in your righteousness, you made a way that we can be reconciled to you. So what a confession to make with all these that have been changed by your grace. All those that are recipients of your mercy. As we gather to prepare, not just for the time of hearing your word, but Lord, as we gather to prepare for eternity. God, you are good and you're greatly to be praised. And in this time, as your word is opened, as your truth is spoken, it is taught, Holy Spirit, would you have your way? Would you teach us? Would you illuminate that text? Would you change us? None of us have arrived. And Lord, I'm thankful that you continue to work in us. Use Pastor Randy this day, we pray. And use us as we depart to serve and to minister. A part of that multitude that we see in Scripture. Worshippers of yours for eternity, messengers of yours here. We love you, Jesus. We praise you for who you are, for what you've done. And it's in your glorious name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may take your Bibles and turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8. Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to begin reading there in verse 6. And we want to talk about this subject today, living as a biblical believer in 2020. And really not only in 2020, but in, Lord willing, the years uh, to come. We're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to uh, quickly try to teach and, and uh, work through verses 6, 7, and 8 of Colossians chapter 2. And then really if there was a subtitle or a, uh, uh, the content, the subject of today's message is really some principles that are going to help us live biblically uh, and to live faithfully uh, for the foreseeable future. These are principles that I learned early in my Christian walk. Um, these are principles that... Um, We've tried to instill in our family. We've tried to instill in our boys. And uh, it's just vitally important that we know what it not only means to be a believer, but how do we live and walk successfully as believers. And Paul's writing to the church at Colossae, and he's taking uh, really all sorts of questions uh, from the church at Colossae about Gnosticism, about this higher knowledge, this special knowledge, if you will, that some people were saying that they had. And what I loved about the Apostle Paul was he was always bringing people back to Scripture. He was either bringing them back to the Old Testament Scripture or he was bringing them back to the teachings of Christ, but he was always bringing people back to the Word of God as God was inspiring the very words that Paul was teaching. And here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6, 7, and 8, the Apostle says, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord... Here's the uh, commandment. So walk in him, 
rooted and built up in him, in Christ, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Listen to what he says. Walk in him. How are we to do that? By being rooted and built up in Christ, established in the faith. Watch this. Just as you were taught. So there's this idea that we're learning doctrine, right? We're, we're learning scripture, and we're learning it in a systematic way so that we can walk in Christ and serve him. And I love this part. He says, I want you to walk in the Lord. I want you to be grounded in him. He says, I want you to be firmly established in the faith. I want you to be encouraged and built up. All of that for two particular reasons. That you would be abounding in thanksgiving. How many of you would love to be able to say a year from now, 2020 was an extraordinary year. I had highs and I had lows. I had trials and I had joys. But in all of that, uh, God gave me a real spirit of thanksgiving. And I was able to abound in thanksgiving. How many of you would love to be able to say that? And so how, uh, he says, there's two reasons, so that you would abound in thanksgiving. And then he says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now, he's not talking about philosophy in the way that we would today, deeply thinking about worldviews and deeply thinking about belief systems and, and trying to answer questions uh, like, why are we here? Why do I exist? Where am I going? What's my purpose here? He, he's not criticizing that. What he is saying is empty or vain philosophy. He's saying, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Living uh, as a biblical believer in 2020. I can't believe that today marks not only the first Sunday of a new year, but the first Sunday of a decade. Uh, when I began thinking about this a couple of weeks ago, I knew where we're headed. We're, we're headed to the book of Acts next Sunday, and we're going to camp there for uh, the next seven weeks, I think it is, and, and preaching about healthy Christian life and the healthy church. And we're excited about that, but I knew the Lord was giving me this standalone message for this first Sunday of the year. And as I was thinking about this passage in Colossians and I was thinking about uh, the principles that God has uh, outlined throughout his word that helps us walk in Christ and live as believers, I've got to thinking about not only it being the first Sunday of a new year, but it being the first Sunday of a, a whole new decade. I want you to think about that. My goodness, how 10 years have flown by. Do you remember what you were doing 10 years ago in 2010? Do you remember that? Have you thought about how your life is different 10 years uh, later? I, I think I'm a, I'm a pop today. I, I wasn't a pop. I mean, I wasn't even thinking about Caleb uh, having a child with Ruthie. We didn't even know Ruthie, right, at that particular time. Uh, Jacob would have been how old? Uh, 10 years ago, seven, seven years old. You were still pudgy back then uh, at, at seven. And so Levi would have been, what, 12 uh, years old back then, 10, 10 years ago. And uh, things just changed tremendously. 
In 2010, Alabama beat Texas for the college football national championship. Do you remember that? Alabama came back and, and won that game in a convincing fashion. The New Orleans Saints beat the Indianapolis Colts to win the Super Bowl. You can see how I uh, frame time in my life all by sports. Uh, Duke beat Butler to win the NCAA championship in men's basketball, while the UConn women won their seventh national championship. In 2010, the San Francisco Giants beat the Texas Rangers to win the World Series. The Winter Olympics were being held in Vancouver, Canada. A movie, The Hurt Locker, won the Academy Award for Best Film. Isn't this prototypical of a country song? The number one country song was entitled Consider Me Gone. I mean, that's just, that's country songs, aren't it? Consider Me Gone was the number one country song in 2010. The number one pop song, I don't think I've ever heard it in my whole life, TikTok um, by Kanisha. I, I don't know who Kanisha is, and I don't know who TikTok is, but... Uh, that was the number one pop song in 2010. Mercy Me had the number one Christian song, All of Creation. Uh, the U.S. was battling a recession with the housing bubble exploding in 2009. I'm sure many of you can remember that. There was a lot of economic uncertainty that was swirling, uh, not only in the U.S., but also in Europe. Obamacare passed in Congress. It was not enacted yet, but it was passed in Congress. Um, a huge earthquake, 7.0 magnitude earthquake, hit the island of Haiti, and uh, thousands of people lost their lives. The, about the whole uh, city of Port-au-Prince was just devastated. That all happened in 2010. There was another uh, tragedy, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico uh, by BP. I don't know if you can remember those images of all that oil washing up on the shore. All of that occurred in 2010. And probably the biggest story uh, of the year, for many anyway, in the media was there were 33 Chilean miners who were trapped, if you remember that. And it was such a uh, story of redemption. They, they were trapped 2,000 feet underground, and 69 days later they were all rescued. And listen to this. Over 1 billion people watched the final uh, miner being uh, brought out from underneath that mine. Over a billion people watched that on TV worldwide that day uh, when that happened. How has your life changed in the last 10 years? How will it change these next 10 years? What I've come to find as a believer is I don't think many Christians um, struggle with just uh, becoming apostate and becoming an unbeliever overnight by desiring to do something that is just uh, wicked and evil. I don't deal with many people who come and say, Pastor, I'm thinking about killing my wife or thinking about killing my husband. Or uh, I don't deal even with many people who occasionally, but not many people who will say, I'm thinking about killing myself. I don't deal with a lot of people who will come to me and say things like, I've got this co-worker and I've got this uh, club and I, I'm fixing to wear this guy out. You know, I, I just don't deal with a lot of Christians struggling with just immoral things. Uh, things uh, that would just automatically put them in jail, right, overnight, or that would be so demonstrative that it would be a mark of being a non-believer, that they're just going to either live in adultery or that they're just going to uh, be totally disobedient to the faith. I don't deal with just a lot of that. But what I have seen since 1984, what I've been tempted to do in my own life, 
um, and by God's grace, he's, he's protected me in many ways, and he's corrected me in many ways. He's used good people like you to encourage me and challenge me uh, in times that I've either wanted to waver or stray or had a misunderstanding about scripture or a passage. And I would say to you all that the areas in life that we have to take note of as we look at this year and as we look at the next decade is not things like, you know, how am I going to uh, make a bunch of money by doing something illegal? The ideas that we have to struggle with are what we refer to as gray areas of life. How will we remain faithful in areas of life where it seems like either Scripture is silent or there could be some truth in two or three different areas? Uh, how is it that we remain faithful through everyday circumstances of life? And so Paul says, as you've received Christ, walk in him. Be rooted, built up, established in the faith, just as you were taught. So there's this idea I'm learning about how to walk in Christ. Abounding in thanksgiving, and then make sure that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So I hope that you'll write these seven principles down this morning. Seven gospel principles for living, growing, and being anchored in Christ, not only in this year, for the next decade, and for all eternity. Parents, I would say to you, you should learn these principles. You should try to model them in front of your kids. When you're like me or Tracy, you fail modeling in front of your kids. Repent of it and tell them that so that they can reconcile, right, what we're teaching and what we're living so that they can reconcile what that means. And so I would say to you it's a tremendously valuable tool to help your children, to help your young children, your teenagers, to help one another understand how will we navigate gray areas of life, how will we navigate areas of our life to where we are not taken captive or we're not tempted to by philosophy or empty, uh, deceitful thought patterns. How do we guard our lives against that, that creeping in? How do we do that? Here's the first principle, number one. I am not my own. My life belongs to Christ. Now, that may seem really, really simple, but I don't know about you, but I had to, I had to uh, relearn that my life was not my own when I came to faith in Christ because I had been taught by my parents and I'd been taught by the world. I'd been taught by my teachers. I'd been taught by everything that I encountered in life for those first 19 years of my life that life is all about you. And your life is all about your success and your happiness and about who you are. But when I became a believer, and I can remember reading for the first time uh, through the book of Colossians, and when I came to Colossians, Colossians 2.20, and I read this verse, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now watch the change. Paul says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I began to realize, wait a minute. When Jesus came into my heart, and by his grace he saved me, he granted me mercy, he gave me faith to believe his word and to repent of my sin and to 
to believe that he died on the cross and rose from the grave. And when that happened and Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, came to live within me, there was a change of ownership. And what that means is not that God did not own us through creation in the beginning, but what it means is there was a change in ownership from my perspective. It was no longer that I belonged to myself. And so it's, it's just vitally important that we realize that one of the principles that's going to allow you to be healthy and uh, to walk in the Lord in 2020 and beyond is to understand you are not your own, that your life belongs to Christ. Mark Dever says this about walking with the Lord and following him in a, uh, in a way in which you're changed, in which you're modeling Christ. Mark Dever says, following Christ is something that's costly, so we need to consider it carefully. And so you may be here today and not a believer, and you would say, man, maybe I'm praying and hoping that in 2020 I can get really serious with the Lord and that he can forgive me of my sin and that I can trust him and I can begin to grow in him. And I would say to you, I would totally concur with what Pastor Mark says. It's vitally important that you understand how costly it is, and so you should consider following Jesus carefully. Christ uh, laid down his very life so that we could know God and be reconciled to him, and he doesn't take that lightly. Uh, when he says to us, I want you to repent of your sin, he who will be first will be last, and he who will be last will be first. He who loses his life will find it, right? He who finds his life will lose it. What, what is the Lord teaching in those verses? He's saying this, that to follow Jesus means I'm surrendering it all, and I'm trusting the Lord, and I'm going to follow him wherever he calls. So it's costly, so consider it carefully. He said it's urgent, so make it soon. You may be here today thinking about, I want to really be a faithful believer. You may be here and you may say, I'm not a believer at all, but I've been contemplating trusting Christ and asking Jesus to be the Lord of my life. And I would say to you, you know what? That's an urgent, most crucial, critical uh, um, decision that you will ever make in your whole life to ask Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior by faith, accepting what he did for you on the cross and by uh, coming forth from the grave, uh, it's so urgent. I would encourage you to make it soon as you consider it carefully. And then he said, it is worth it. Following Jesus, trusting him through the gospel is worth it. So therefore, you'll never regret it. I want to say to you, since 1984, I've never regretted being a believer. There's not been one time that I've thought, well, you know, the church is asking for money. And so there's this mission and I need to give to this mission. I've never regretted that. I've never regretted sometimes I get a phone call or I get a text or somebody says, hey, pastor, will you pray about this? I never regret that. Sometimes you guys will start a conversation by saying something like, pastor, I'm sorry to bother you. And I'll say, what are you talking about? That, that's what I'm here for, right? That's what God's called me to do. I, I want to hear about it. I, I don't know how to effectively pray for you. I don't know how to effectively minister to you. I don't know how to rally the troops of our church family if I don't know. And so I would say to you guys, that it, it's just vitally, vitally important to realize and understand if you're not a believer, you're never going to regret trusting Christ. You're never going to do that. There's not only a peace that comes in knowing him in the midst of adversity, in the midst of spiritual warfare, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of sanctification. God is, will grant you his peace and you'll know that the Lord is with you. And so this first principle, I am not my own. My life belongs to Christ. If you're listening today, say amen.
because the rest of these six um, are only going to benefit you if you've got number one nailed down. If you understand this life I now live is no longer mine, but it's Christ. And I'm going to live it by faith in him. I, I, I want you to hear this and understand that. If you compromise on whether your life is all about you and your family and what you want, or whether it belongs to Christ, as soberly as I could say to you and I, if I could walk up to you and look every one of you in the eye personally and as compassionately as I know how, say to you, you'll never be the follower that God wants you to be if you're not completely sold out to him. And the very reason is, is because God is completely sold out to you. He loves you. He sent the very best that heaven had so that you may know him. God is not looking down at you, thinking about how he can torture you and make your life miserable. Some of you here today, you may be going through the trial of your life and think, I don't know if I can make it another day, another week, especially another year or decade. And I want to say to you, God is faithful. And when you lay all of that and give that to him, he's going to encourage you and pick you up and build you up in a way that you're never going to regret being able to say, I am not my own. My life now belongs to Christ. I'm laying down my perceived rights, my perceived attitudes, everything I'm giving it to the Lord. Number one, I'm not my own. My life belongs to Christ. If you got it, say amen. Number two, my old nature must be transformed by knowing and obeying God's word. My old nature, my nature before Christ, must be transformed by knowing and obeying God's word. I must be born again, and when Christ comes into my heart, he gives us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. He gives us a hunger and thirst for his word. He gives us a hunger and thirst for Christ and knowing Christ through his word. Romans 12.2 is another one of these biblical um, principles that you just find throughout the word of God that helps us understand, oh, here's how I can walk and live in Christ and I can be honoring to the Lord. Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This command about being transformed by the renewal of your mind is in the passive voice in the Greek. And what that means is this, that this transformation does not come from our effort or from an outside source. I can't go up to Brian and say, Brian, transform me, will you? I, I, I need you to help me. Tell me something that I need to do to, to transform me. That is not what he's saying there. What he's saying here is this. He's saying that this transformation, this renewing of our mind, comes from the Holy Spirit that uses the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. As we read the Word and as we meditate on the Word and we apply the Word of God to our life, that renews our mind, it changes us, and it changes us from the inside out. So it's the Holy Spirit of God in you making um, the Word of God very evident and clear for you to understand so that the Word of God can become incarnate in you so that the, the, the life of Christ can be demonstrated and lived out through your life. Does that make sense? It's not just a conscious decision for us to be able to say, okay, this year I'm going to be transformed. 
It's more than that. It's the idea of taking that next step of saying, okay, I want to not only know Christ and surrender my life to Him, but I want to know Him according to His Word, and I want my mind to be renewed. I want my life to be transformed. I do not want to be conformed to the world. Oh, my brothers and sisters, I would say to you that this principle is something that will not only guide you, but it will root you and ground you. It will establish you in the faith, being able to know God's Word. I would encourage you this year, it is not too late. We are, what, January 6th today? No, January 5th today. I mean, it is not too late to start a Bible reading plan. I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to meditate on God's Word. There's a big push I'm seeing on Twitter. Guys are saying, read through the Bible, read through the Bible, read through the Bible. And if you've never done that, I would say to you, you should read through the Bible. But I want to also encourage you, understand what you're reading. Give yourself to the Word. Meditate over it. Pray over it. Ask diagnostic questions. That means ask deeply, uh, ask deep questions about the text. Who's writing the text? Who are they writing to? Is there a blessing in there for me to receive? Is there a command for me to obey? Is there a sin for me to confess? What is God trying to reveal to his original audience? What is he saying to me today? And as you read the Bible in that way, you're going to be amazed how your own nature will be transformed by knowing and obeying God's word. Now, what will keep us from having our own natures completely transformed by the renewing of our minds as we give ourselves to the word of God and the Holy Spirit honoring that word in our heart and life? And it'll be this. If you believe, your own nature doesn't need to be changed. And so let's talk about that today. And you don't have to raise your hand, but I want you to answer this question. Do you believe that when you were born, that you were born a sinner with a depraved, lost nature that is is bent and predisposed and given to sin? Or do you believe that that baby is cute as you were, as great as your mom and dad were, do you believe that you were not that bad? Do you believe God's word that says we were all dead in our trespasses and sins, or do you believe secular humanism that says humans are not that bad, we just have to figure ourselves out? My brothers and sisters, if you believe that humanity at our core is not that bad, you will never be transformed and you'll never be the believer that God wants you to be. But if you agree with what God's word says about us and our sinful nature, you have that opportunity to say, I have a need. I have a need to be transformed. My goodness, I have a need to be transformed. It's an ongoing, continual process. Last Sunday, we were playing ball in London, Kentucky, and I made this commitment, man, I was going to keep quiet and let the coaches coach and, you know, let the referees referee the boys play. And Man, we just had some homers. We had homers Friday night. We had homers Saturday. And, man, here's one of these homers. He's back out there on Sunday. If you're not a sports fan, that means a homer's a word for a bad referee. I mean, he, he's just a bad referee. He was from the mountains, that region there, and he done threw out this one boy. I don't know what he had said, and our fans were... I, I, here's one thing I've noticed. Bearcats fans are sort of quiet, and so 
I've been sitting up top, all right? This is all y'all's fault. I've been sitting up top and being quiet. I've noticed nobody's down there cheering for them boys getting fired up. So I told Tracy, I said, we're going down. And she said, you got to behave. And so, you know, I'm going, I'm cheering for all the boys. I'm cheering for boys, calling them by name. And then I had to cheer against this referee a little bit, you know. And they called Jake for a charge, and I didn't think it was a charge. And I didn't think they were giving the guy room to come down. They were our three-point shooter guys. They weren't giving them room to land. They were our guys were landing on their feet. And I just I just said to the guy, hey, 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 you need to be consistent. Now some of y'all are telling me I've been cussing a referee. <laughs> Poor Carson Browning. I was such a terrible witness to that kid. Is he here today, or is he is he just renounce the faith because of his pastor. That poor kid said they threw out the preacher on Sunday. I mean, it's just terrible, right? What are you saying, preacher? This idea of being transformed is something that continually goes on in our hearts and our lives. We, we say to the Lord, God, help me know your word and help me to be transformed by your words so that I'm not conformed and I don't act like a heathen at a ball game and, and transform us. Our old nature must be transformed by knowing and obeying God's word. If you've got it, say amen. I'm not my own. My life belongs to Christ. My old nature must be transformed. And you just have to realize our old nature was bent and predisposed and dead in our trespasses and sins. Here's the third thing. I must be comfortable living as a minority, realizing the world's majority opposes Christ. I was really struggling in my faith. It was probably month 10 or 11 after I'd been saved in 1984. I went to a preacher's house and I said, I don't know, I think it's impossible for a 19-year-old, 20-year-old guy to live for Christ. I, I don't know how a guy's supposed to do that. And he said, what are you struggling with? And what, what are you imagining, 19 or 20-year-old guy who was not raised in church and just had a terrible attitude? I was just feeling that, that real temptation and inclination to um, participate in things that I should not participate in. And so I went to him and I just said, man, the, everybody in the community is screaming. Do what you need to do, what you've always done. God forgives you of all that anyway, and so just keep doing it. But I just knew that was, that was not the Bible I was reading. I knew I just couldn't live an old way and say that God had changed me through the power of Christ. And I can remember that preacher under a shade tree saying, I'm going to read a couple of verses to you, and then I'm going to tell you that the world's majority is always wrong and you're going to have to make a decision if you're comfortable living as a minority. This third principle is I must be comfortable living as a minority realizing that the world's majority opposes Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 7 verses 13 and 14 Enter in by the narrow gate. The word is the straight gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Verse 14. For the gate is narrow and the way is straight or hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. 
what was it that Jesus was saying about this verse? What was he instructing his disciples to be and do here on the Sermon on the Mount? He was helping them to understand that the kingdom of heaven, that God's plan, his city, his people, his kingdom is unlike this world. That Jesus is a narrow way. Jesus is this gate. He is the door that the sheepfold must enter into. And that when you are on that Jesus road, it's a narrow road. It's a high road. It's a godly road. And you're going to feel this intense pressure to just uh, dumb down or water down your faith and just travel the wide road. Because the wide road leads to a lot of neat places and a lot of what seemingly is entertaining places. And, and the wide road leads you to a place to where there's not a lot of, of uh, discipline or rules or a lot of edification. You can just sort of feed that old nature. MacArthur says it best when he says, the way that is broad is the easy, attractive, inclusive, indulgent, permissive, and self-oriented way of the world. There are few rules, few restrictions, and few requirements. All you need to do is profess Jesus or at least be religious, and you are readily accepted in that large and diverse group. He continues and said, Sin is tolerated, truth is moderated, and humility is ignored. God's word is praised but not studied. His standards are admired but not followed. This way requires no spiritual maturity, no moral character, no commitment, and no sacrifice. It's the easy way of floating downstream in the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working the sons of disobedience. It is the tragic way which seems right to a man, but whose end is the way of death. Compared to the straight gate, which Tozer says, Christ here compares the way to life to an entrance through a narrow gate, the word used here, means pent up, narrow, difficult to be entered. This word is used and it means that the way to heaven is narrow, pent up, close, and not obviously entered. The way to death is open, broad, and thronged. So Jesus says, is the path to heaven. It's narrow, it's more restricted. Not that Jesus won't receive you, but that there is a more narrow path to trod. It's not the great highway that men tread. Few go on this straight and narrow path. Here and there one may be seen traveling in solitude and singularity. The way of death, however, on the other hand, is broad. Multitudes are in it. It is the great highway in which men go. They fall into it easily and without effort, and they go without thought. Tozer. Why did I read those two long quotes? My brothers and sisters, this third principle, you have to be comfortable living as a minority in this world if you're going to be found faithfully, living faithfully at the end of 2020 and even more so at the uh, end of or at the beginning of 2030. You, you just can't compromise, right, the gospel. The world is going to say, do it this way, and they may even say to you, you are too narrow. You're too Bible. You're, you're too goody two-shoes. Let's have some fun, and after all, God will forgive you anyway. The question there is not a question of forgiveness. 
It's a question of devotion. It's a question of love. And so for all of you teenagers, all of you middle schoolers, all of you high schoolers that are here today, I want to encourage you. Become really comfortable being a minority. Don't, don't get swallowed by that wave of mediocrity that people just love to jump in and to be consumed by. Be comfortable living with that minority. You say, preacher, to what degree do we do that? We do it to the degree that we understand it and that God convicts us and that he leads us to. We don't want to do what everybody else does because everybody else is probably traveling that wide road that leads to destruction. God has a different way for his children, and it is a blessed way. So I encourage you, get comfortable being a minority. Here is the fourth thing. I must protect my witness by avoiding the appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Paul says, abstain from every form of evil. That is the ESV. And so it, it's a, a great way of understanding, right? So the King James would say, you, we need to abstain from the very appearance of evil. And people struggle with what does that mean, the very appearance of evil. And really what he's trying to say is this. You need to abstain from every form of evil. This is oftentimes easier said than done. But what Paul is talking about there to those uh, believers at Thessalonica is he's saying you need to steer clear of evil in any form. Whatever is sinful, whatever is of the world, whatever is seeking to put its clutches on you and to try to consume you, he's saying that form of evil you need to steer clear of. Here's a good way of saying that to all of our adults here today, all of our students here today. He's saying watch your company. He's saying, watch your culture. He's saying, watch your character. Because there's guilt by association um, that can occur because you're not avoiding an evil situation. People would say, uh, the, the pushback to that is people who would say, yeah, but that, that directly stands in conflict of the Great Commission because God sends us into darkness, so I'm supposed to live amongst the darkness. Listen to me. We are to go into the darkness carrying the light of the gospel, and at what point we're feeling tempted to yield to sin, we remove ourselves from that culture, and we become fortified, we become prayed up, we become uh, making sure that we are word-driven, and then we can go back in. But my brothers and sisters, it's very difficult to help somebody out of a mud pit if you're down in that mud pit with them, right? What you have to do if you're in a pit of quicksand You've got to get to the edge of that firm ground and you've got to reach down in there and you've got to pull them out. Does that make sense to you? You jump in there with them and you live like the world lives and you participate in sinful, evil acts like the world does. I'm going to tell you, you are not a witness at that time. You need witnessing too. People say to me all the time, I've had this question a thousand and one times since I've been a, a pastor, Hey, Pastor, I like playing music, and I like playing music in bars, and, and do you see anything wrong with that? I, I, I want to lead worship on a Sunday, but I want to play music in a bar, you know, on Saturday nights and Friday nights. I, I think it's a good witness. 
And I would say, how is it singing the devil's music? How is it being in the devil's place? How is it where you're participating in a place where people are trying to forget about their life by taking wine and spirits and beer and alcohol? And you know that that stuff's only going to, it's an addictive substance. It's, it's only going to cause them to be worse. It's not going to cause them to be better. How is it that you're light in that situation? Just tell me about that. Well, I'm just there, and so I'm just light. My brothers and sisters, the light that we have to share is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a verbal witness. It's not just a lifestyle witness. If you understand what I'm saying, say amen. Somebody may see you there and say, man, that dude's just morally good, right? Somebody may see you in that situation of evil and just say, hey, that guy's just hanging out, and he's just a good person. But if you don't share the gospel, you never get to that place of understanding that that's the true light that someone really needs. So we must protect our witness by avoiding the very appearance of evil. I can tell you this uh, has stung me. It has stung me uh, multiple times in my young life uh, growing up. The first time it ever happened, we went to a uh, in Chicago, open fields were called prairies, so there wasn't a ton of them, but when you found them, it was a neat place. It was, uh, it was a place bigger than your grassy yard, and it was a place you could go dig up stuff and hunt snakes and those type of things. And me and a friend of mine named Jeff, we went to this prairie, and on the edge of the prairie, on the backside of it, was a, a semi-truck place where they parked trailers. We had taken guns over there, you know. We were playing soldiers. I was probably nine or ten years old at this time. and Man, we were defeating whoever we were fighting at that particular time. We were having a big heyday. And we had built a fort, and we were spending the night, so we had all this stuff going on. And then as the night began to fail, we had these fall, we had these flashlights, and Jeff said, hey, they're shining the lights of them trucks on us. we got to go put them out. And I said, yeah, let's go put them out. And we ran over there, and he took the butt of his gun, and he started breaking out those trailer lights. And I thought, what in the world are you doing? I said, you can't be breaking out those lights of that trailer. And he said, they're blinding our lights. The lights weren't even on, right? This is an imagination of two kids, probably 10 years old and 12 years old. And so I thought, I need to break out those lights. And then I thought to myself, my dad's going to wear me out if he finds me breaking out these lights. Here's what we didn't know. There was a trucker coming in that night to hook up to a trailer. And he said, hey, what are you doing over there? He had this flashlight. And so we were just froze, dead in our tracks. He comes around there. What are y'all doing? Well, Jeff, you know, we're just breaking out these lights. I'm thinking, no, I wasn't breaking out the lights. I could have, I was a block and a half from his apartment. I could have turned around and walked away. I could have took his gun out from his hand. We were really getting after it because we were using those old Kentucky uh, musket rifles, you know, that were wooden and like one shot here. I sound like the machine guns or something. I could have took that gun away from him. I could have stood in front of the lights. I could have done a lot of things. You think that trucker just said, boys, y'all are in trouble? That trucker said, where do y'all live? I said, well, I live a way away, but he just lives over here. <laughs> he said, let's go. 
Now, my mom is in that apartment with his mom, and they're doing each other's hair. They did a lot more than do hair that night. I got whipped for being at the wrong place at the wrong time to somebody who was doing something evil. Y'all say, but that wasn't. Here's the problem. That wasn't evil. That was just little kids playing. Little kids with sinful hearts, not understanding property. And what happened is he was hooked into that trailer that night and his brake lights are out. Right? This idea of protecting our witness by avoiding the appearance of evil is something we really need to master if we're going to be found faithfully. It's not the idea of law. It's not the idea of regulation. It's the idea of, wait a minute, am I presenting Christ or am I presenting something different? Number five, we've got to hurry. I will make worship a daily and weekly essential in my schedule. This fifth principle that's going to allow you to be found faithful is understand the importance of worshiping Jesus every day, realizing this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. And worshiping, worshiping him weekly, corporately with this body, not just taking Sundays off for just any reason. Sometimes we're providentially hindered. We have sickness. Uh, there's somebody that we love and taking care of, and they're sick. We have issues that um, we're in a place to where you just got to work, and maybe you got to work every other Sunday or some of those situations. You're just providentially hindered. That's one thing. But just casually not making worship a priority is something that will devastate you. Here's the way the Hebrew writer says it. He says, since we have this great high priest over the house of God, he's referring to Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir up one another to love uh, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Hebrews 10, 21 through 25. This principle of making worship a daily and weekly essential in our schedule is vitally important. Worshiping him every day, individually, worshiping him corporately as you come together. I want to encourage you parents, that alone is going to send more testimony to your students as they're growing up, your children as they're growing up, than anything else that you can do. Um, by God's grace, by God's mercy, not according to what Tracy and I have done, he taught us that principle and we've tried to live by that principle. And I don't think it's by accident that our two oldest boys, they're in worship when they're away at college, right? It, it's, that's not by accident. I'm not having to call them and say, hey, did you go to church today or did you skip out? Did you go and worship? They're worshiping on Sunday mornings. They're worshiping on Wednesday nights. They're trying to serve and be active in church. Uh, it's not like, uh, like you've got to uh, call and climb out of bed and say, hey, make sure you get to church today. We, we've just not had those issues. And the, the reason for that is if you model a life that says worship through the day is not important, and worship on the week is not important. It's not going to be important to your kids when they make their own decisions. It's just not going to be. You, you have to not only model it, but you have to embody that. 
And I would say to you guys, make worship a real priority. I, I'm not about numbers. Uh, if I was teaching a class and I wasn't a pastor of this church and you guys were saying, how can you grow in the Lord this year and how, how can I be found faithful two years from now? I'd say to you, man, don't forsake worship. Let God speak to you as you open the word. Learn, grow, be fully invested. Make worship a weekly essential and a daily part. Number six, you guys are listening too slow. Stand to your feet so that if you're, if you're starting to, I'm starting to lose you, I'll pick you back up here. Stand to your feet. Hurry. Number six, I will love my neighbor by preferring them and not causing them to stumble. Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said, we want to avoid being a stumbling block, and we want to make sure that we prefer. So by preferring others, we're loving others. By not becoming a stumbling block to them, you are really uh, demonstrating the love of Christ. You say, preacher, there's some people that they're going to say you're a stumbling block because there's just not anything you can do with them. Do all you can do. They're responsible for their own decisions. But in every way possible to remove something that's going to cause them to stumble, you should try to do that. And in removing that thing that's causing the stumble, you're going to demonstrate the love of Christ because you're probably going to be forsaking a preference that's, that's yours. And as you forsake that preference that, that you're holding to, it's not an issue of right or wrong, it's an issue of preference, you know what you're going to be doing? You're going to really be uh, loving them and demonstrating that kind of love to them. And so you should love your neighbor as yourself by not causing people to stumble and by preferring them. And then lastly, number seven, this principle, God has given me a gospel mission to make him known everywhere. If you all will live this year and this next 10 years thinking, my God wants me to be a witness to my family, to my neighbors, to my coworkers, to my neighborhood, to my community, to my church, to people that I don't even know around the world. This idea that God, when he saved you and came into your heart, has given you this gospel mission to make him known everywhere. It will bless you. It will stretch you. If, if all I ever knew about God was what I experienced in my neighborhood in Chicago, how miserable and how uh, deprived I would be if all I've ever known about God is what I learned from him in Metcalf and Barron County, I would say, while it would be good, how deprived I would be. Not until you embrace the mission that God wants you to take the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world, will you truly begin to understand how great and how glorious and how magnificent God is, how, how splendid he is, and how he can use all of us in our own ways, to reach the world with the gospel. You get on an airplane, you go to a city that's got 15 million people in it, you begin to look around and the thought comes to your mind, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. All 15 million of these people God created. All 15 million of these people, if they get the gospel, have an opportunity to respond and to have their sinful, depraved nature restored so they can be reconciled to the Heavenly Father. They can begin to pursue holiness and righteousness in which they were designed to. They can become worshipers of the one true living God. When you begin to see God in that frame, then you can begin to say, 
What a mighty God we serve. That God is so much bigger than our own personal experience. God, listen to me, y'all. I did not want to be a preacher. Nobody said to me, hey, if you will start telling people about the gospel, this is going to be this great life. You should really do it. The gig pays good. No. Nobody said that, and that wasn't the desire. It's the idea of beginning to see God as who he is and recognizing that I was so far from him and a sinner, but yet God loved me so much that he forgave me of my own sin, and now that I can know him and be reconciled to him, that there's a whole world of people that still have not had an opportunity to hear, they've still not had an opportunity to receive, and man, it's our job to get those folks the gospel. And when you understand that God's given you that gospel mission to make him known everywhere, you're going to find that Christianity is not so much about a list of do's and don'ts as it's about a love affair. I didn't have to tell nobody about uh, Tracy. Nobody said, Tracy never gigged me and said, hey, tell them how wonderful I am. Man, when, when we started official courtship, and especially when we started using the love word, and especially when we started being committed with an engagement ring, and I was telling everybody, Tracy Miller, the Tracy Lynn Miller, said yes to me. I mean, I was excited about that, right? When you know your life has been completely changed by the God of this universe, and that you can know no greater love, no greater purpose, no greater power than Jesus Christ, you're going to want to share that with people who have not received Christ. And so will you take these seven principles and ask God to begin to work them in your life? And let's pray today that not only at the end of this year, at the end of this month, but 10 years from now, we will be living as a biblical believer, following Jesus to the ends of the earth. God, work in us, I pray. God, I pray that we would decrease, that you might increase in us. Lord, we commit not only this first Sunday of the year to you, but God, we commit this entire year to you. Lord, whether our life has many days left or few days, God, I'm not for sure if all of us will be here a year from now, let alone 10 years from now. But God, I know that you know all of that. What, what we uh, see in very dim ways, and in some, some ways not even see them at all. God, you see clearly. And so I pray and ask today, God, that you would allow us, Lord, to take your word and these principles, that, Lord, we might walk in you, that, God, we might be rooted, that, God, we might be grounded, that, God, we might be established in Christ, that, God, our lives would be abounding in thanksgiving. And, Lord, that we would not be led astray by vain or cunning or crafty deceptions or philosophies. And so, God, work in us. We surrender ourselves fresh and new to you. God, I, I need you. I need you, Lord, to be a witness to Tracy and to Levi and to Jacob and to Camden and to... Caleb and to Ruthie, to Kerr and to Desiree, 
and this little baby girl, Annie. God, I need you to be a witness to all these families here, all these teenagers and all these kids. And so, God, will you give us wisdom to embrace the framework of the gospel in the process of sanctification that we might grow in you and honor you. Lord, I am so thankful that we are gripped by your grace. I'm so thankful that you equip us according to your word. And I'm thankful, God, you give us an opportunity to follow you and obey. So, God, as we lift up our song, we lift up our voices of praise. God, draw us near. Help us to respond in faith. God, work in us. Lord, we pray for those who are here today feeling a strong temptation to leave the faith or to sin or to be disobedient. We pray for those today who are in intense trials. God, those who are facing overwhelming circumstances. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters. God, we love them. We entrust them to you today. Build up your church is our prayer. Lift our voices to the Lord. If you need to come and pray, if you need to come and if you want to be saved and you don't quite know how to do that, I would love to show you God's word. But in obedience to the word, if God's calling you to come, I, I want to invite you to come. Let's stand.